Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Hannah Dunleavy and I want to talk about booze. Alcohol has played a huge role in my life and is responsible for some of its highs and a lot of its lows. I'm interested in what role it plays in other people's lives and how things like age, race, class, sex, religion, geography, profession, health conditions, family history, good old fashioned trial and error affect what they drink and why they drink it. I'm not here to preach to anyone. I'm certainly in no position to do that. I'm just looking for a better understanding of alcohol's role in Britain in 2019. This is The Drink. Please listen responsibly. Hi, and welcome to the first episode of The Drink. Thanks for turning up, guys. It's currently December the 29th that I'm recording this. So dry January is approaching. I don't know if any of you will be trying that. If you do, good luck today also would have been my dad's 70th birthday, which is pertinent. And you'll probably learn why in this upcoming podcast. Also, I learned today that December the 29th is when the children next door have finally tired of the karaoke machine that they got for Christmas. Hooray! Over the next year, I'm hoping to go for a drink with someone different every week and have a chat with them about their relationship with alcohol. That will be a drink entirely of their choice. Please don't pick cider, anyone. And since I think it's unfair to ask people a question that I wouldn't be prepared to answer myself, I've decided to start this opening episode by talking about my relationship with alcohol. I asked my good friend and standard issue colleague, Mickey Noonan, to ask me some questions. And that's what's coming up in this episode. If you'd like to talk to me about anything that I mentioned in this, or in fact, a booze at all you can reach me on twitter where i am at the drink podcast or facebook where i am the drink podcast coming up next week is a drink i have already been for i went for a cup of tea with the brilliant historian greg jenner to talk about why he doesn't drink at all about male bonding and alcohol about celebrity and alcohol and about prohibition that's prohibition with a big p and a little p so that's coming up next week But in the meanwhile, here's me and alcohol. Hello, I'm Mickey Noonan and Hannah and I are sat on my living room floor because we are glamorous. (laughs) Someone's wearing their pajamas. I'm not going to say which. Hannah, what are you drinking? We are drinking Bullet, which is a bourbon. And I had a bottle of Basil Hayden. I was going to bring because I had a funny story about it. But then I thought we should probably drink Bullet. I feel like I should hold it. Where's it gone? I've got, it over I mean, there. I've got it because I know what's best. For it me. is, <laughs> it is my my absolute favourite. Partly because it's the very first bourbon I ever drank, and I was very late coming to whiskey. There was this thing about whiskey, the way women in my family used to talk about it. I was a bit scared of it, and they talked about it in the same way that a lot of people talk about coke. And by coke, I mean cocaine. Yeah. Not what the, we're drinking it with. Yeah. Whiskey and Coke. That it made people really aggro. And then I went on holiday with my brother and we went to South Dakota and Wyoming and we were in a bar and he was we we're in the Wild West. Yeah, it's we Wild sh- West drink. We should be drinking whiskey. And so I was about thirty two, thirty three, and this was what they were selling in the bar and I drank it and I had a pump to Jesus moment. I was Please, like, please tell me that the barman poured you a shot and slid it down the bar. <laughs> he didn't, but funny story. <laughs> We got so absolutely freaking hammered and the guy behind the bar had just come back from a tour of the Iraq war 
and Wigland asked him loads of really personal intrusive questions <laughs> until my brother said he just went sir your wife's fallen off her stool <laughs> and Chris said he just went that's not my wife and then he just carried on drinking and then it about occurred to him about two minutes later that he should probably see if I was okay and the other reason I chose bullet was because you bought me a bottle of bullet I did <laughs> And this really is perhaps, inappropriately. <laughs> this is perhaps the greatest example of my life with booze is you bought me a bottle of this to commiserate on the day that my dad was diagnosed with cirrhosis of the liver. I am a very thoughtful friend. <laughs> you are. That's about as, yeah, as fucked up as I think our relationship with booze gets. Because I am a very thoughtful friend, I did help you drink that bottle. <laughs> I did. saved you a little bit from yourself. You did. And I like that we're drinking Bullet because I too really love me some bourbon with Coke. I have to have it with Coke. Because that actually, I think, is a fitting drink for us two to be having because it is what we have got drunk on together several times before. Yeah. The thing with whiskey is I, you really like it. My brother really likes it. My best mate really likes it. But all of you are not often in my house to drink whiskey with me. And so therefore I have, hello burglars, <laughs> I have a massive stash of whiskey in my house because people buy it for me and because I don't drink on my own and because not everyone likes whiskey. It's just piling up now. It's getting ridiculous. I've started giving bottles away. Doesn't particularly give me a hangover. And I have, as you can attest, I don't do very well with getting drunk. And I am puking McVomitson. She all is the puking McVomitson. Yeah, I've never seen you puke on whiskey. No. Oh, no, wait. What, Chinese the, children. The Chinese children <laughs> on, the, on the pub experience. <laughs> oh, yeah, wait. Yeah, I think we'd actually been drinking. Wine, wine, then whiskey. <laughs> then whiskey, we, we, I we think that was the problem. We went out of wine and then drank the whiskey. But the weird thing is, there's some odd social thing about whiskey, or all spirits, I think, in that they're seen as a hard drink, and therefore there's something odd. Everybody goes for a drink after work, for example. Do you fancy a quick whiskey after work? <laughs> it's like it, it just doesn't. You always feel like you should be drinking beer or wine or yeah. something. Like a longer drink. Yeah. Yeah. I think I like whiskey as well because just one sip takes me from, I mean, the cosy and at the moment festive atmosphere of my front room in Halifax, Yorkshire, to a saloon bar where I have just walked in and I am so exotic that the dog has stopped playing the piano. <laughs> He's looking at me wanting to know what happens next. You've clearly got some stories about booze, but what is it that has made you want to drink with me and chat about booze? Booze is really interesting, and it occurred to me that we don't really talk about it very much. I mean, I talk about it a lot because having a count last night, it's in double figures the amount of people I know who have died as a result of alcohol, Jesus. either through an excess of alcohol or through an accident caused by alcohol, mm -hmm. or by mixing alcohol with prescription drugs. All of which makes it really interesting to me. But one of those people was my dad, so I can't help but you can take it personally. And what I find most interesting is, despite the fact that I know all about it, as in through what we're supposed to call now lived experience, I don't really know anything about it at the same time. We're never really taught about it. It's just part of the culture and we get on with it. There's a number of things that I believe to be true about alcohol. So I suppose what I want to know is whether or not they are true. I've spoken in the past to quite a lot of people. I spoke to Professor Sophie Scott. She's a neuroscientist about booze and I'd like to get her on here again and talk to her. She disabused me of a few ideas that I had about alcohol. But equally, I've had conversations recently with other children of alcoholics and they have reinforced what I've thought about a lot of things about alcohol. I had a conversation with the Shadow Health Secretary, Jonathan Ashworth, whose dad was an alcoholic. You can hear that on Standard Issue. It is an excellent interview. Made me a bit teary though. For a long time, I didn't really talk about... I mean, for a start, I know two other children of alcoholics because I've got siblings. <laughs> <laughs> But actually, weirdly, you don't really talk about it with them because it's just, that's what life is. You know, like twins. Yeah. What's it like to be a twin? You don't know any different and it's what it is. You talk about it in as much as, because you, you you're not talking about what it's like to be the child of an alcoholic. You talk about what it's like to be the child of your dad. Yeah. So that is like a unique experience. But like I say, when I spoke to Jonathan Ashworth and when I spoke to Caroline Flint, almost immediately you get this real sort of same deep war as me feeling about them because they are saying things that just chime with you. Things perhaps that you'd attributed to just being 
that one person are actually universal experiences. But equally, some of the things that perhaps you attribute to alcohol turn out possibly to be just that person. Yeah. Talking about is a really big deal because you, you were revealing a piece of information about someone that they have chosen themselves not to, not chosen not maybe to not even to recognize yeah, yeah exactly that we were we chatted previously and it is who gets to use the label alcoholic yeah. where does that come from does it come from the person who decides well this amount and my relationship with this substance means that i have got problems or does it come from society judging but it's all relative it's very hard to work out who makes that decision my experience will be a lot different to a lot of people and I think that in a lot of ways my experience will certainly have been easier than a lot of people. I think it's harder if it's your mum than your dad because your mum tends to be more involved in your day to day. Certainly in our generation a lot of people get abused. That didn't happen to us. I mean I feel the need to say that but I also feel the need to say my dad wasn't a saint. I spoke to a friend of mine the other day who I hadn't spoken to for two years and she actually wasn't aware that my dad had died. And almost immediately, she just told me this amazingly funny story about my dad. Everyone just loved him because he was loads of fun. He was really warm. He was really welcoming. Mm-hmm. He was really generous. He was really intelligent. He was interested in people. But he also drank way too much and absolutely point blank refused to acknowledge that he had a problem at all. But you're right where's the line when I was about 15 when I started to say I think he's an alcoholic and use that particular label and use that and almost immediately everyone told me that was ridiculous including some people I knew whose dad was an alcoholic and yeah I mean my dad wasn't drinking as much as their dad was but on the other hand I think there was something around that time that I thought this is it this isn't going to change this is what my dad is Sort of serving that one master, which is his addiction. No, but as in that was like, that's the lifestyle. That was who he was as a person. He was incredibly sociable and he used to go out a lot and he had loads of friends and, you know, absolutely cracking raconteur. All of that was so tied in to booze that I just thought, I can't see this ever changing. And for such a long time, he was able to continue to work, continue to maintain relationships, continue to keep his head above water financially. That's not to say my mum didn't also work and we weren't by any stretch of the imagination well off. So booze equaled fun? Yeah. And, and I fun just... equaled booze? Yeah. And I, so I don't know at what point. I'd like to speak to an alcoholic and ask them if they could identify the moment that, not the moment they realised that they were alcoholic, almost the moment they became an alcoholic. Maybe he was always an alcoholic, even... Before then, maybe the first time he had a drink, you know, the the time was cast or whatever. I don't don't know. Has that made you change your relationship with booze? Well, I don't know. I drank a lot when I was younger, a lot. Up until I would say I was probably in my early 30s. I mean, I went into journalism. Journalism is really, really boozy. It is indeed. But even before then, like at university, I drank a lot. Sort of mid-90s, life was good ish <laughs> oh remember remember the night remember and it was really it was really boozy but i went to university in portsmouth portsmouth was also awash with drugs at the time well literally come in on the show yeah like, it's just it's a that sort of town it's at one point when i was there there was a story about how a speedboat had gone over and hailing island loads of coke had washed up on there yeah i mean i was relatively hedonistic in my early 20s I don't think I ever risked the point of becoming an alcoholic. I think, if anything, I was close to becoming a, a drug addict. But I singly failed to give up smoking. So I obviously do have some sort of addictive personality, if that's a thing. It is a thing. Susie Gage told us it was a thing. It is to- well, it must be true. But yeah. Also, it is totally Dr. Thing. Susie Gage. But yes, apparently, statistically, I am twice as likely as the child of an alcoholic to become an alcoholic myself. There's no certainty whether that is nature or nurture because you definitely do pick up this idea drinking is just, it's just what you do. Yeah, you're British. I I grew up in a small town. It is what you do in a small town. But I, I don't think I gave it any particular serious thought at all until I was probably in my 30s about 
how what I was drinking was a result of, or how I drank rather than what I was drinking was probably a result of the culture that I grew up in. Because around that age, late 20s, early 30s, when I looked at my dad, he's probably in his early 50s at that point, and other people are starting to fall away is the only way I can describe it. Friends of his had died through drinking. Which is pretty young, isn't it? Yeah. And plus other people just, they had their kids or they had their mortgage or they had some other commitment or they just got too old and they couldn't drink anymore. That it then became really, really clear to me that my dad had a serious problem. I think that, that sort of became clear when I was in my sort of, I said he was in his late 40s because no one else was drinking the way he was drinking. And up until that point, kind of everybody had been drinking the way he was drinking. Still drinking like a man in his 20s when he was in his 50s. So then, of course, it becomes drinking at home rather than drinking out. You say in that wonderful interview with Jonathan Ashworth, it was when your dad retired that it it really kicked in. It went to shit, yeah. Because... I feel like I should be careful because this is about talking about me. Yeah. I don't even feel qualified to talk about him because I've no idea what was going on in his head. What happened was he he had heart surgery. He was 60. And up until that point, he was project managing some... I mean, he'd done well. Don't get me wrong, in all of this, my dad's career, he was getting on fine. He was also self-employed, obviously. He had to have six months off. And it's tough to get him insurance to work on a building site. And people don't employ men of his age much anyway. And he just really couldn't work anymore. So he'd been forced into retirement. He didn't even choose retirement. So I think that would have an effect on anyone's mental health, let alone the mental health of someone who used booze. And then he died when he was 68. That last eight years. <laughs> it's just accelerated. Yeah, really. I mean, the last two years were proper, proper bleak. Because when when friends of his died, when people he loved were ill because they were drinking and that didn't stop him, he started to think, I wonder what it is. I wonder what it is. And, and when then he I wonder got if that, there's anything. And then when he got that diagnosis, cirrhosis of the liver, I thought, well, I mean, that's it then, isn't it? That's it. We are no deal breaks in now. Like there is, there is no going back from here. I'm trying to open this bottle to pour more. Right? I know. And I know it's going to come out really easily, so I might as well just do it. Yeah. The sweet, sweet sound. <laughs> <laughs> One of the reasons that I thought I need to start talking about this again, you can listen to it on Standard Issue, was that Jonathan Ashworth, about two two weeks after my dad died, three weeks something like that, he gave a speech in Parliament when he was talking about his dad. It's so obvious. Okay, I went to see, this is a sideline, I went to see Macbeth the other day at the Barbican because Eccleston's in it and he's amazing. And the three witches were played by three little girls who were about eight, all dressed the same, all spoke at the same time. Genius. And the minute I saw that, I thought, how has this not happened before? Yeah. Like, it seems so clear. And that's the only way I can explain it. When Jonathan Ashworth was talking, I looked at it and I thought, he's saying what I know to be true, but it's almost like one bit of my brain and this bit of my brain haven't for the listeners hannah pointed to a separate part of her brain (laughs) they haven't had a conversation and it's not just about you it's part of this massive wider issue it's happening to people absolutely everywhere and you just don't talk about it and i have to say it's a shitload easier to talk about it because he's not going to know that i'm talking about it and so i wouldn't in any way want to force anybody else to say stuff that they didn't want to say for the listeners i'm pouring coke it's the it's the sort of the key to it is the fact that it's not going to change your relationship with them anymore. When you were of an age where you could start drinking, did you hang out with your mum and dad and have a drink all the time? Yeah, you were quite a boozy family together. Thing is, with us, my dad was one of thirteen, and they all no, they didn't all live in London. Two of his sisters are in America. And there's a couple of other that are scattered around, but a, a good six or seven of them all lived in West London, um, Shepherd's Bush, um, Hammersmith, Barons Court, that mm-hmm. neck of the woods. So we used to go there all the time. And I felt like that I was constantly at a party in my childhood. <laughs> just what happened when that many people were in a room together. Yeah, well, yeah that's that what a party is. They would all just start drinking. 
my aunts and my mum would put some Motown on, or as my <laughs> mum always calls it, Tamala Motown, and they would have a bit of a dance, and it would be great. Or we'd be in Newport Bagwell, and all of their friends would come round. The first time that I was drunk, I actually don't remember because I was so young, but there is a story, and again, my dad, because he was like a bit raconteur, it, this story might be bullshit, but he claims that I once was toddling round and drank some stuff and fell asleep for about 16 hours. At what point did no one take me to hospital? I don't know. (laughs) Hold on to that thought. First time I was really, really drunk, I was about 13. I was at my Auntie Jackie's house and her house was really tiny. How she fitted all of her family in it, I don't know. Just kids in cupboards. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) seriously. And this is really tight hallway space. And my sister and I, who who didn't, we didn't always get on when we were younger, but obviously we were up to some mischief together at this point. She'd have been about 15, I was about 13. And we decided that we were going to get drunk. And basically we did it by asking everybody if it would be all right if we just had one can of beer. (laughs) And nobody knew that this was going on until I fell down the stairs and I banged my head and I can remember being put to bed, which is the worst possible (laughs) thing to do. Let's just Um, make sure she keeps her eyes shut. That's what you do with someone who's had a head injury, right? (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, we did a lot of drinking. They never objected to that. The idea that I would come home drunk and it'd be a problem with my parents at whatever age. My dad sometimes used to be a little bit judgy about the pubs that served us. And he'd be like, oh, I won't be going in there if it's full of teenagers. (laughs) (laughs) Not judgy that they were serving you, just that it was going to ruin his drinking experience. Absolutely. But my Uncle John ran a pub and a couple of my dad's friends ran pubs. So we were in pubs all the time. And my mum worked in pubs. In fact, I can remember... The Rose and Crown in Newport Pagnell, I have a memory of bottling up. I mean, it probably doesn't happen anymore. They used to have crates, that, like Britvic crates and pale ale crates, and they're all different shapes and sizes and colours. Mm-hmm. And they always used to get returned. When the new order came in, You gave them; they were recycled specifically to the company that they came from. Yeah, yeah, yeah. you could get money back on the bottles. Yeah, and I can remember doing that in the backyard of the Rose and Crown. Um, my mum worked there when I was about six. It may have been a job, I don't know. I may have been being paid for it, I don't remember. Paid. I used to help clean a working men's club when I was little. <laughs> my mum would want some some peace and she'd go and stay and she'd go out and get drunk with her mate Darren in Blackpool. And then the morning after, because my mum was never a massive drinker, Darren would take me to work to clean the pubs they'd been in before. <laughs> The night before. <laughs> Bloody loved a bit of Brasso, mate. <laughs> I think what I did was I went to work with my mum and she gave me that like it was a puzzle. Like yes. other children were putting triangles in like shapes of triangles and Charlotte and I were putting pale ale bottles in the brown one and tomato juice goes in that one. So yeah, it was but... it was a big part of your life from yes. a very early age. Yes. And but never spoken about just just in the background and the foreground and on the ground. Funnily enough, there were people in my in my dad's life that he was at points worried about their drinking, and there were people in his life that he was judgy about their drinking. How much must they have been drinking? It's all relative, though, isn't it? That is literally the point. For a long period of his life, he wasn't any more unusual than any other man. Because if people like I quite often say I don't drink very much, which is a stupid statement to make, because I spoke to Greg Jenner the other day. And he will be coming up next week. And he doesn't drink at all. So, of course, I drink quite a lot in comparison. Because I would also say I don't drink very much. But I do drink. And I tend to not drink in the week. I don't really drink at home. A bit like you, I have booze because people buy me booze. And if I have someone round, then I'll have a, a glass of wine with them. Or I've got some gin. I'm quite handy at making a cocktail. But in the week when it's just me, I wouldn't think, oh, I'm going to open a bottle of wine or I'm going to have a beer. I certainly wouldn't have spirits. I don't know why. But as you said earlier, that like that feels harder. But I do drink. I do. And I probably drink too much because I go out and binge, which is the worst kind of drinking. Or so we've been fed. Well, I mean, that's the question of dry January, isn't it? About whether or not it's actually a good idea to create this idea that not drinking for a month is somewhat special and unique because not drinking for a month could just be normal for a huge amount of people yeah dr susie 
Dr. Susie Gage has a podcast called Say Why to Drugs and one of their episodes is about dry January and I don't want to basically regurgitate all of the facts from that so people should listen to it if they haven't but there is some suggestion that for some people it helps them save money for some people it helps them lose weight for some people it helps them with other things that they've committed to like for say for example giving up smoking or going to the gym yeah yeah but for a lot of people and i know this as someone who's repeatedly tried to give up smoking failing tends to throw you into a who cares attitude feast. yeah yeah the, the other reason i've seen dry january use and, and have done it mine actually came after a breakup from an alcoholic and I just thought I don't want to drink for a while and it just happened to happen at Christmas Merry Christmas (laughs) and so I just sort of accidentally did dry January into sort of the end of February almost two months it was like a reset button for me it just dropped yeah it dropped my tolerance down and therefore it dropped what I was drinking down and I wasn't as fussed which was quite an interesting exercise yeah I get to be moderately sanctimonious about it because it's not entirely my choice of how much I drink anymore. It's the fact that my... Pukie McVomitson. <laughs> Hello. She's back. Yeah. I have suffered from that to a certain extent my entire life. What's the weirdest place you've ever thrown up because um, of booze? Oh, God, I can't even think because... Well, apart from uh, down my own top rather than throw up on a small Chinese child um, which is a story you can hear on a, a standard issue podcast but here's a disgusting vomit story because it's not just me my entire family has weak stomachs oh the gaggy um, family actually with the exception of my dad so I maybe who knows but my brother is a big puker as well and he once came and stayed at my house and we had a party and he was sleeping on my bedroom floor and heard a noise and I thought oh god he's going to be sick and sat bolt upright in bed and he puked on my bedroom floor and I was like oh you're going to have to clean that up he's like oh just being drunk and I was thinking oh god I'm going to have to clean that up mm-hmm. while I'm sick in the darkness processing all of this and the smell I can hear this as he released a snake and I, I couldn't work out what it was. And then suddenly I saw fire. And he had managed to puke into one of those multi-socket things. Oh my God. And it... Oh my God. I can, I can, I can see the smell. <laughs> I can feel the smell. Oh my God. We had to move out of that house like a year later. <laughs> and it still smelled burnt sick. It was so disgusting. I wasn't there when I can smell it. I would like to know what is the drunkest you have ever been? Probably the drunkest I've ever been, as in the the booziest my life has ever been. Mm-hmm. I lived in a place called Jindabyne in Australia when I was about 24. I was there for eight weeks to do a ski season. It's crazy. It's like the Edinburgh Festival, but for like two months. Everybody's... Oh my God. Having done a lot of Edinburgh Festivals, the idea of one lasting two months makes me feel physically poorly. Nobody lives there everybody is just there to work fun story about Jindabyne we have a little stop there was a town and it was at the bottom of a valley and they decided that they needed to build some sort of hydroelectric dam and they would need to build a lake and they compulsively purchased the entire town flooded the valley and a new town was built so there's a massive lake there it's lovely when the water's low, you can see the tops of the church spire and stuff oh, coming like, out of the water. Like Lady Bower in yeah. Derbyshire. Anyway, that's by the by. People obviously live there, but mostly people don't live there. Everyone's there just to do the ski season. So everybody's in shared rooms, rented accommodation, hostels and stuff. So when it's out of season, is it like that time you went to Bournemouth in February? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it was just sharp. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> so there's nothing to do. Well, drink and fuck. That's basically what everybody does in those places. And that... As I call it Wednesday. <laughs> well, that was two months worth of Wednesdays. Okay. It was insane. So I think from that point of view, that was the booziest my life had ever been. And I had an accident while I was there and I ran into a metal post and I chipped a bit off my shin bone. Um, yeah the nearest hospital was about 20 odd miles away and I you know I didn't have a 
car. And, a good hour's ski away. Yeah, and it wasn't until I went back to a city when the season ended that they were like, that's nasty. So, Have you got a scar? Yes, and I also have, if you put your finger down, it didn't get set in the right place. It had moved by that point, so I have a Does lump. Does your shin sound like one of those instruments you play with a ruler? <laughs> yeah, it has a lump and then it has a dent. It's pretty gross. Ours um, a frog. A <laughs> <laughs> fish. <laughs> <There you go. laughs> yeah. So that's basically my shin. Have you done quite a lot of damage to yourself while you were pissed? Oh my God, if somebody else had done the damage to me that I have done to myself, they'd probably be in prison. Uh, or at the very least, they'd have some sort of criminal record. I'm not the steadiest, generally, on my feet. Confirmed. <laughs> <laughs> when I'm sober. And, yeah, when I'm drunk, yeah, I fall downstairs. I... I've, I've seen you careen back through a pub. <laughs> it's like watching pinball. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I, I say it's because of my hearing, so my equilibrium is terrible, but... Talking of equilibrium, I had a virus about two months ago. Actually, it probably wasn't even that long ago, but it's Brexit, slows time down. And at the same time, speeds up (laughs) like a black hole. But I had a thing that affected my equilibrium and I had to go to the doctor and I had to walk. I got a taxi. The bit my doctor is is pedestrianised, so I had to walk down and to the doctors and then I had to walk down to to Booth's to pick up my prescription. The street was so busy because Christmas shopping plus Cambridge tourism and it's Sydney Sussex Street which is one of the busiest streets in Cambridge and I I couldn't walk in a straight line because of equilibrium (laughs) and I had to stop and be sick because it's so disgusting and you know I am very pukey. And I thought, oh, God, there's probably a video of me now on YouTube. Go <laughs> check out this pissed up bird at like 11 o'clock in the morning. So if you see that, there is an excuse. An excuse? I mean, I'd have said reason. Yeah, reason. There is a reason. <laughs> or explanation. Yeah. There were many words you could go to there, Hannah, but you chose excuse. I fell over once uh, and I don't know, I managed to punch the ground on the way down and I got what's called a boxer's break, which is these two knuckles here, which is your smallest two fingers and the knuckles on the hand bit and my hand all broken in one fall. Ooh. Yeah. I'm pretty clumsy. I think it is a thing though. If I look back at the damage I've done to myself through boozing then it is an abusive relationship. Oh, absolutely. It's, it's self-abuse, not in the same way that you can't hold hands with God while you're at it, but <laughs> it is self-abuse. I, and I am not proud of this at all, but I woke up in hospital not knowing how I got there. Wow. Lived in a small town growing up and I could stagger home from the pub in five minutes and I am very much, a, I get to a certain level, I'm aware of it and I go, I need to go home. And that was fine when I had to just not say goodbye to my friends and stagger off for five minutes and I was home and it didn't work well when I first moved to London so we'd gone on this works do and I was the baby and they'd been like teasing me and playing me drinks I was also one of the only girls and I was a girl I was still really really young but I was in Green Park and I needed to get to Croydon so basically I got to Green Park station and then just slid down the wall of the tube and some kind guardian angel who wasn't a rapist thankfully picked me up And he got me to Victoria and by then I basically just passed out on him. But I went the sleep of the dead sleep that you get when you're drunk. And so poor guy gets me off the train at Croydon and decides to take me home to his because he doesn't know what else to do with me. As I'm getting out of the taxi or he's getting me out of the taxi, I just land on my head. So now he's got a a drunk, asleep, concussed woman. And so he, he took me to the hospital and I woke up hours later and I was where am I and they were like we think you might be concussed and I was like no no I know I'm in a hospital but where am I and they were like Croydon and I was like result and they were like please leave (laughs) and I was like that is fair enough (laughs) and I said someone brought me in though did did he leave a name or a number or anything I I, I think his name who was that masked man who was that masked man and they said we didn't get a name or number tried home cannot overstate this so really lucky that he was such a lovely man and also just looked after me. And I bumped into him, oddly, on a bus about two months later. And I was on the bus and this guy went, hello, you don't remember me, do you? And I went, oh, are you my guardian angel? And we'd text every Friday, he'd text me a message going, take it easy. <laughs> 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 I think some 
sort of vigilante temperance movement. Absolutely. <laughs> Just cleaning up the streets of London. They call me Prohibition Man. <laughs> That's amazing. But very, very silly. And it's like that booze properly skews your judgment. And I can use the um, excuse or explanation. What's well, an excuse? I, w- I was pretty young. I was trying to keep up with the boys. I'm a fairly slight woman. I'm, I'm not great at drinking. I've never been great at drinking. The stuff I've done when drunk, I'm not going to go into all of it because some of it is just awful. Why hasn't that been a wake-up call? So what does it take? I don't know. Hannah, uh, I'm looking to you for answers. <laughs> but at, at an entire tangent, you telling that story reminded me of something amazing. One of the funniest things I've ever seen. I went to Wembley Arena again with my brother. I do have other friends that I do She doesn't with. have any other friends. <laughs> I think we've been to see Eddie Izzard. And you know when you Her go brother down, is cool. You know when you go down to the tube to Wembley, there are trains and they're waiting for you because there's so many people that they're trying to offload onto them. They're like, please leave, please leave. So it's not like they're going to move particularly urgently, but they are loading up. And there's this group of really laddie lads. They jump on a train. You know that bit in Crocodile Dundee? It's like that. Crazy packed with people trying to get on an underground. <laughs> and they, one of their friends is so drunk that he falls and his head whacks against the carriage of the train. He basically knocks himself out and then his head falls backwards and it sort of goes between the carriages of the train. So people are trying to get involved and help him, but obviously it's really packed. And my brother shouts, mate, into the train for the group of guys that have just gone on to say, your friend. Like, seriously, the best thing that can happen here is you come and sort this out. And the guy puts his head out the door and he sees his mate lying with his head wedged between two trains. (laughs) (laughs) And he says, Steve, stop fucking around. (laughs) (laughs) Steve, you made a bad decision, mate. (laughs) Deal with it. That reminded me of a story. (laughs) A friend of a friend was coming home pretty drunk after a night out on the town in that London and um, he basically did not mind the gap (laughs) (laughs) and he slipped between the train and the platform right but managed to just sort of get his arms his elbows (laughs) onto the train onto the tube and then (laughs) had to haul himself up like the walking dead like a zombie (laughs) and crawl onto the tube (laughs) as the doors tried to close behind him do you know what though? If I was on a tube alone and I saw that, I'd be kicking him back down. Get out! Get out! No! Just kick him in the head. It's a straight shot to the head. But yeah, he said that no, absolutely nobody tried to help him. They just <laughs> stared at him as he hauled himself out of the gap. Here's a cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. We're talking about that sort of laddie boozy thing, but what's really interesting to me, and presumably to you, as you are also a feminist, don't assume anything about me, Hannah, but uh, you are right, I am a feminist, is that society has a very different attitude to women and drinking and men and drinking. Indeed. She says really... again, doing this. Oh, God, it's such a sweet, sweet sound. Where does that come from? Does it come from we can't drink as much? Women are physiologically I know, I think it's just because women are judged for everything. I actually sent a text message to the Jeremy Vine show, which I've never done anything like that in my life, when someone on it said it was unladylike to be drunk. And I was like, <sighs> literally, hit the brake into that lady. <laughs> Fuck off, Jeremy Vine. Is that what you sent? Pretty much. <laughs> that was it. But also around the Christmas period and New Year, it is always drunk 
birds basically yeah. that they show like over a, a bollard or just like sat on the street talking to their mate and it is it's to shame us however women are problem drinkers on a level with men it possibly if not more as in that's the group that the biggest rise is coming in i know you've got an interview lined up to talk about this but wine one o'clock. o'clock yeah i'm talking to the scummy mummies about wine o'clock because on the one hand yes i can see it from anecdotal experience and by that i mean just to browse on facebook really that wine is seen as a uh, the ultimate wind down tool or well it is it's a relaxant isn't yeah, it yeah and that's and how the evening the end starts of the day. yeah a lot of the problem with addiction i believe comes from routine so if that's what you do every night the kids are in bed i will have a glass of wine and that's how i relax that is worrying but on the other hand when you look at things like i say anything to do with the daily mail for one but quite a lot of the rest of the media you also have to be aware that it is just one more stick to hit women with another thing to make women feel inadequate or mothers feel like they're not good enough because most of those women won't go on to be alcoholics but some of them will so that's a really difficult issue but of course the main problem with it is that it's hypocritical because i've worked in the media and the media is boozy as hell anything that the media does about booze or drugs to be honest with you it sort of should be taken with a pinch of salt and do check it is salt but that thing about judging women harsher it comes down to that word the word ladylike oh absolutely i've been told many times by men and by some women as well that the language i use is industrial it's not very ladylike and that means that all I say to them is, well, I don't give a fuck what you think ladylike means. Yeah. Because it doesn't mean anything. And it's just putting those prescribed definitions of woman into a bigger use. They do the same with booze. Well, it's not ladylike to drink. What does that mean? What if, what if I drank my wine from a teacup with my little finger out? Well, does that they, make it better? There you go. That's something else that's really interesting. And I have someone lined up. It's not definitely happening, so I don't want to say. But I have someone lined up to talk about the gendering of alcohol because there is this idea of pint bloody gin and tonic rosé prosecco i'm out with the girls women yeah i love a prosecco and it's ridiculous because all booze is i mean we're drinking whiskey whiskey is a more it's masculine drink yeah. and i don't know why and gin is perceived as a feminine drink and they're both booze well gin is perceived as a feminine drink i think because of hogarth isn't it mother's ruin and like the, the image of women who have two gins and then cry on the stairs for the rest yeah. of the evening. It's been brought into society and made true by repetition that if you're a woman, if you drink gin, it will make you depressed and you're going to end up on the stairs crying. Yeah. And if you have a pint, then you're a ladder. You're like Zoe Ball or Sarah Cox from the, from the 90s. Yeah. And I like a pint because I will drink the other stuff too quickly and I'll actually take my time over a pint. And I am one of those buggers who if I like have drunk half my pint and someone says, do you want another one? And I get a half. I tip that half into my pint pot. I had this conversation the other day. Yeah, the idea of drinking a half is still just abhorrent to me. And I don't know why. I, I don't know where it I think it's because it's associated with that's what the girls drink. Exactly. And I, I was a proper tomboy growing up. I was always the the little fat funny one who the boys would like but wouldn't fancy and so i was one of the boys that was what i tried to be and and was accepted as Mm. therefore i wasn't going to drink what the girls drink and it's so weird that that was just internalized misogyny that now it feels weird to have a half i want to know because you said earlier that you're very pukey and i can absolutely confirm this because i've seen it in physical action (laughs) several times how do you deal with a hangover Apart from screaming into the sky. Well, I used to be a lot better with it because I used to have to deal with it. When I worked on an evening newspaper, you start at 6.45 in the morning. So I used to have to get up about half past five. And I don't know, I used to go out drinking till 12, 1 o'clock in the morning like normal people do. Yeah. And I say normal, I use that word so advisedly, yeah. And I would just have to deal with a hangover because I'd just have to be at work. And it's amazing really how busy you would be at a newspaper at that point you were just in and it was bang news off you go now partly because what i do can be done really at any time not every day 
because sometimes you have an interview and sometimes you have a deadline. But just a reminder, I am actually in my pyjamas right now. <laughs> exactly. Perhaps you're given the opportunity to wallow in it a bit more than you might ordinarily. I mean, certainly friends that have kids, you've got no choice. You get up, you got a hangover, you do that. Maybe I get to wallow it in a bit more, but I am really, really bad. In fact, when I say I'm pukey, I generally I'm not sick on the night that I'm drunk. I like sit bolt upright in bed at four o'clock in the morning and that's when I'm ill. And that can go on for like twelve hours sometimes. It's you've seen that. It's, I know, right. So I don't I'm have not children. exaggerating by any stretch of the imagination. I am bad when yeah. I am hungover. I don't have kids and so the pitter patter of tiny feet to me means Dunleavy is hurling at the toilet <laughs> and then hurling in the toilet. Do you not think it's an age thing, though? Mine oh, it's definitely absolutely an age got thing. so much worse as I've got older. Oh, it's absolutely, definitely, and I don't I know for days. why. What is it about the aging process that causes you to be less good at certain things? But also, there's a level of with booze that you just sort of go off stuff. I have to say, I did go off red wine. I did used to drink red wine. And I went off red wine. It was the first thing that started to disagree with me. And that was in my early 30s. But also, red wine was what my dad drank most of at that point in his life. He was always up until a certain age. I mean, I think it's a class thing with him. He was always a go-to-the-pub-for-a-pint guy. He was a beer drinker. Maybe they cracked spirits open later, but it was always beer. And then, like I say, when they got a bit better off, he became a wine drinker. And I I don't know, maybe things work on a subconscious level. Maybe there was something... Because to me, it was like the smell of red wine became a bit abhorrent to me. If I have to drink wine now, I will drink white wine. And to be honest, I don't really like white wine. But if that's what the choices are, red or white, I would go with white because there's something about red wine that I I just know that's nasty nasty hangover waiting for me I'm the other way around white wine makes me rancid red wine I can mainly I'd say nine times out of ten I can drink a lot of red wine and be fine in the morning but then the tenth time it'll be awful interesting what you were saying about your dad and the class thing and it was a pint you go for beer I feel like one, wine didn't exist till the late 80s (laughs) slash early 90s. And two, wine was definitely something that I would have put in when I was growing up. We didn't have it because it was posh. I mean, I didn't have it because I was a child. It wasn't something my my mum drew. What was the one with the blue nun? My mum used to get blue nun or Liebfrau milk from Marks and Oh God, I can remember Liebfrau milk. I can remember that being around. So somebody must have been drinking it. Such a (laughs) treat (laughs) at My family is Catholic, and that's an odd thing to say, bearing in mind that most of my family don't go to church or believe in God, but... Jesus still loves them, Hannah. He does. My dad certainly was not a believer, but some members of my family are, and that's certainly what they were brought up. And actually, that's what I was brought up. I went to Catholic school and all of that. I can remember when my uncle died. I was 15. One of my dad's brothers died, and it was horrible. He died really unexpectedly. And it was a, oh God, just the bleakest thing that I think had ever happened to me up until that point. Possibly ever, in fact. Young men don't just drop dead. And that's what happened in in this situation. He had a brain hemorrhage. And I can remember a priest coming round to talk about his funeral. And my granddad and my dad and this priest getting seriously drunk. I can remember my dad the next morning saying, it wasn't bad for a priest. (laughs) And thinking that it's odd. Whiskey or whatever it was that bonded them at that moment. And I don't know, maybe you don't know what else to say to people whose son and brother has just dropped dead for no good explainable reason. And there was something in it. I don't know, some weird bonding experience. And that's, that's actually quite interesting with alcohol. It's like a universal language of something that we all seem to understand. I've got drunk with people when I didn't want to get drunk and I had no money to get drunk or whatever, but that's what they needed to do at that particular moment. And I've gone and sat with them and got drunk. You can't can't hear this on a podcast, but I am nodding vigorously. Yeah, totally. And isn't it weird that you don't really even question it. You just think, this is what's happening now because they need us to do this. Yeah. It's 
it's that weird social lubricant thing again, but also just it's, it's that, that, that glue. Yeah. It's a glue. It does bring people together, particularly in our culture. And and then the flip side of that is, as much as it brings people together, booze absolutely drives people apart because oh. all of the fighting happens after Abs- a drink. Absolutely. So what are your feelings on booze? Do you think booze is friend or foe? I think it's dangerous. If you see the worst of what it does to someone, which, like I say, I have seen in horribly HD close-up, slow motion. And this is someone, like I say, who is physically strong, intelligent enough to understand the issue, but still cannot defeat this, then it's dangerous. I sometimes wonder whether I make a thing of this whole, you know, it could be me thing. Because in knowing it could be me, you kind of create a demon that you want to stay away from. There's a <laughs> there's an end of level boss that you don't ever want to meet. Yeah. Yeah. But on the other hand, I don't really understand the way we look at it compared to how we look at other stuff. Genuinely, I and I'm not saying this in a way that people throw out a rhetorical question in order to prove themselves right. I I don't understand why a bit like tobacco. It's really dangerous and it's there and it's treated like it's a social norm and yet at the same point something else like let's say marijuana because marijuana actually has demonstrable health benefits for many people as a smoker and this is this is really interesting as a smoker and i'm talking about hannah not me i don't smoke i used to i don't booze isn't covered with the warnings and the hideous images tobacco packets look at that bottle that bottle is beautiful i love it i mean it's artistically lovely it's lighter than it was there (laughs) there are other things i think it's sip smith's the gin that comes in that that lovely thing cracking spiced rum with a handle that looks makes me looks like a pirate exactly and talks like a pirate labels all over it that said death 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 but the whole thing with cigarettes were cool you know you've got matthew mcconaughey just rolling it up into his t-shirt tapping one out and and now they've gone this stuff kills you guys we're gonna like put put warnings on and booze is still not treated the same way no that's that is a mystery to me because like I say, it's dangerous in the same way. And it's more dangerous, as in, uh, I have a friend who... Stop showing off, Hannah. Was a, uh, It's not my brother, it's great. <laughs> I have a friend. He She's was, lying. <laughs> he was a heroin addict for a long time. And he said when he gave up heroin, it was obviously unbelievably hard because mm-hmm. there is a physical addiction. But when it was gone, you make a move either geographically or socially and you you move away whereas Bose is everywhere and he was like if I was an alcoholic and I go to buy a pint of milk in the corner shop and I pay it's there stacked up behind but he's like they're not trying to sell me heroin they're trying to sell you booze and yeah totally your mates don't booze. go so we're just going to meet up in the local heroin bar <laughs> exactly yeah, you, don't, I mean, you, don't, you don't yeah. <laughs> you don't you don't have to have a go really. <laughs> they yeah. sell other like... <laughs> they, they give you an orange juice I'm sure it'll be fine <laughs> when we've chatted about this before when you were first talking about starting the drink you asked me what one word would you use yeah. to describe booze and what I said was fungerous. <laughs> That's a great word. And I am sticking by it because it is, it's two-faced, isn't it? Yeah. So I, I totally stick with that description as in you can't trust it, It, but it can be the best one ever or the worst night of your life or the worst years of your life, I guess, for a lot of people or for a certain sector of people. But I think the point there is you have a again this is something sophie scott was saying about you know the personality of booze what determines what happens to you when you're drunk is what mood you were in when you started drinking yeah mood and environment and the fact that a lot of us are like oh i've had a catastrophically bad day at work and therefore i'm gonna get pissed that's gonna how you well. think that's gonna end well but that is how culturally british people deal with literally everything had a great day let's celebrate with a drink yeah. had a shit day let's commiserate with a drink did you go to work today let's have a drink it's yeah. just like there's 
There's no reason that we won't like go to the pub. That's a cycle. I think I've broken the what do I do when I'm in a bad mood? I get drunk. Mm-hmm. I still don't know how I would celebrate something. I'm not talking about, hey, cracking champagne all over the place. But I still don't know what the thing is that you do when things have gone really, really well in that sense. Because it's everywhere. You know, when people give up drinking, one of the first things everyone seems to say to them is, well, if you're at a wedding and the champagne yeah, going yeah. around, that seems to be the sort of default position. What they seem that. to do is taunt them immediately. Yeah. Yeah, I, I've spoken about this quite a lot on uh, the standard issue, on our standard issue podcast. I have suffered from depression pretty badly over the years, up and down since I was, well, diagnosed at 19, probably before that. And it took me a long time to know that when I am in that dip, when that black dog is leading me rather than the other way around, don't drink booze. And it's it's been a literal lifesaver because all it's going to do is exacerbate that mood. But you're right. If I'm like in a good mood, a drink with my mates is lovely. What is drunk you like? What what is a drunk Hannah? I know, but the listeners haven't. I think drunk Hannah is just like me, but just more. More Hannah. More. Clumsier. Louder. Does it give you more... Do do you think you're funnier? No, I don't think I'm... No, I don't think I'm funnier. I am interested in how booze and creativity go together Mm. because... And this is almost like a subconscious thing that happened to me. As in, I never put any particular thought into it. I was 15, 16. You know, we start being really melodramatic. What I was really, really into, or whatever you want to call it, into sounds like something my mum would say. Oh, she's terribly into Ernest Hemingway this week. But yeah, Ernest Hemingway. <laughs> I love that. Like, what's she into? Is she into Duran Duran? No, my daughter's terribly into Ernest, Ernest Hemingway. Hemingway this week, yeah. Tennessee Williams. Dylan another Thomas? thing that I was like, not, no, not so much dylan thomas but you're picking up on a theme here definitely was boozy and i don't think i even realized it was boozy at the time that i first got into it i mean obviously tennessee williams is boozy as in they're always drinking in it but you know until i sat down and actually read stuff about tennessee williams that i was like oh yeah he was full on full on again my childhood hero and this is someone i learned of because of doris day not because of anything else calamity jane was an alcoholic i I mean obviously that wasn't in the film calamity jane it wasn't till many years later when i read up on her it is hard to sing and ride a wagon (laughs) it really is but then again why wouldn't you be so grim when you look at how they were living i'd be like yep please give me some booze Oh, Hannah's dropped the booze. Clumsy Hannah's in town. Why I think I have to watch out for with drinking is I can be quite morose. And I can be quite morose in life. So being drunk and morose is not a great look. Actually, here's a point of sexism. It's a great look if you're a man. It's not a great look if you're a woman. Oh, yes. Yeah. We're not allowed to be the darkness. No. (laughs) No, we're not allowed to creep into the darkness. Having been drunk with you on more than two occasions... You are a nice drunk. I don't think you're belligerent. And if I thought anything other than that, I probably wouldn't have said it. Probably get a bit louder. But everyone uh, yeah, does. I would say definitely. But louder. also, we're usually in a pub, and obviously, you're you've got hearing difficulties, yeah. so you get louder anyway because it's a loud environment. But I can safely say, hand on heart, that I I don't think God, she's been an arsehole ever. My dad could be a massive dick while he was drunk. So you'd... I think it's in everyone. That I think the potential lies there. And I do think that somewhere in the back of my head... I mean, obviously, you get to a point where you, lose, you, you do lose control. And I've the been the inner drunk, voice is gone. Well, you don't yeah. even know who that person is. But trying to sort of tame or whatever, don't say that. Walk away from that conversation or yeah. something and try really hard not to be an aggro drunk. I've definitely. got to say, that is the flip side to the hangovers getting worse. I am way better at going, no, I'm not going to be the arsehole. I, I think I, I have known times when I've been a real belligerent drunk in the past and just got really stroppy and yeah. arsy or taken offence for no reason and I don't like her and now I've gone mm, I know when she's arriving and it's time to stop drinking and go home and I am better at putting that in place I think you learn stuff from other people around you as well as in I have friends that I know they're heading to that place so maybe i'll go home yes i'll go home and then we'll just avoid this all together i have a lovely friend and i adore this woman she's really really great 
But basically, she can go at any time from the first drink. So yeah. I've just learned not to drink with her because she's punched me. She's been like, it's amazing we're still friends. But what I've worked out is if we're going to be friends, we're in environments where we don't drink together. Because yeah. you're not going to stop drinking. I'm bored of having that argument with you. I don't want to get punched again. And yeah, yeah I'm, I've learned to extract myself. So there was a reason that we are starting with this one. And that was that you thought it would be a good way to start is to sort of get drunk. And I thought it happens. would be helpful, to be honest. And I'm wondering now whether I've been too <laughs> honest. But there you have it. Because I don't want to ask anyone a question that I wouldn't be prepared to answer myself. I mean, obviously, there were, I'm hoping to talk to people who have a particular area of expertise that I don't know the answer to. That's why I'm asking them the question. I love that my area of expertise was just drinking. Just being drunk with me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm actually, I'm, I'm fine with that. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.